This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're back from our spring break, and this week we have a program about martyrdom and memory, looking at the life and death of Archbishop Oscar Romero, 35 years later. But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The group known as UNASUR, which represents a dozen countries in South America, condemned the United States this week for its economic sanctions against Venezuela. The Obama administration has faced criticisms for sanctions that some say are aimed at destabilizing the Venezuelan government. For months, Venezuela's president, Nicolás Maduro, has accused the U.S. of backing unsuccessful attempts to bring down his government. The U.S. says the sanctions are in place to punish human rights abuses. Jen Saki of the U.S. State Department reacts to the allegations. We've seen many times that the Venezuelan government tries to distract from its own actions by blaming the United States or other members of the international community for events inside Venezuela. These efforts reflect a lack of seriousness on the part of the Venezuelan government to deal with the grave situation it faces. The Venezuelan government did release four dissident leaders from custody this week, including Christian Holdak. Venezuelan authorities had jailed Holdeck for more than a year, saying he led anti-government protests that spiraled out of control last year. The government is charging Holdeck with responsibility for some of the violence. These releases come not only after criticism from the U.S. and the international human rights community, but they also come after the suicide of Rodolfo González, another dissident leader who was held because of his anti-government views. The Venezuelan government still holds about 40 opposition leaders in custody as part of its crackdown on dissident views. Allegations from the U.S. Treasury Department against Venezuela caused a banking crisis in the small principality of Andorra. U.S. officials say they have proof that Venezuela's state-run oil company used an Andorran bank to launder at least $2 billion and the oil company's accounts were used to move money connected to drug dealers, and some funds may have been funneled to terrorists. Andorra's government took control of the bank, which is also accused of laundering money for criminal groups in Russia and China. The Brazilian magazine Veja released an investigative report that says Venezuela may have brokered a special deal between Iran and Argentina. The magazine quoted various former members of the government of Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, who died two years ago. Those Venezuelan sources said the Iranians financed the election campaign of President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner in 2007 and used Venezuelans as couriers. Argentine officials did impound $800,000 in a suitcase from an airplane with high-ranking Venezuelan officials in 2007. The Veja report says that cash was part of the Iranian payment. Venezuela also brought more than $7 billion in Argentine bonds as part of the deal. In exchange, the Veja report says the Iranians received Argentina's scientific advice for its growing nuclear program and a promise to cover up Iran's ties to the bombing of a Jewish community center. These allegations are similar to those put forth by Argentine special prosecutor Alberto Nisman, who was killed two months ago. How much is it worth? 
That's what officials in Argentina were asking when they confiscated a 55-pound gold bar stamped by the Central Bank of Paraguay in 1824. Authorities took the bar from two men trying to smuggle the gold across the border from Paraguay. The men said they had bought the gold for $50,000 from a group of indigenous people along the Paraguayan frontier. Experts say they believe the antique gold bar is worth at least $2 million. No word yet on which government will get to keep the gold. No Latin polls, this is Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. And now we turn our attention to the martyrdom of Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador. Pope Francis is set to beatify Romero in May, putting him one step closer to sainthood. Next week marks 35 years since Romero was assassinated, gunned down by a sniper as he said mass. Romero had evangelized against killing during El Salvador's bloody civil war that raged from the 1970s into the early 1990s. But conservative death squads found his gospels about peace and ending poverty too dangerous, and he was ordered to be killed. Jeanette Rodriguez is a professor at Seattle University who has written about Romero. She is the co-author of the book Cultural Memory, Resistance, Faith, and Identity, among other books. She spoke to us via Skype from Seattle. I believe that Monsignor Romero really is the medium of a much more powerful, powerful and long-term tradition, and that is the tradition of the Church of the Poor and the Church of the Martyrs. So we celebrate not only the life of Monsignor Romero, but um, we sort of revisit or retrieve the church's commitment uh, to the poor, uh, the church's commitment to defend the rights of the poor. Um, The church, the people of God is what I mean when I say the church. Monsignor Romero said, for example, quote, that the church would betray its own love for God and its fidelity to the gospel if it stopped being a defender of the rights of the poor a humanizer of every legitimate struggle to achieve a more just society that prepares the way for the true reign of God in history. And so I think this celebration um, is a remembrance, a reminder uh, of how to incarnate or live out the gospel message. And a lot of times people focus on Monsignor Romero, and as they rightfully should because he was an incredible man, but really, you can't talk about Romero without also remembering the 75,000 El Salvadorians that were killed. That's a good point to bring up, that Romero was just one of those really killed during the Civil War period. But we, we don't reflect that much these days on the turmoil that El Salvador went through during that particular time. One of the things that I think that underlines your book is the idea that Um, Romero was also trying to put the focus on victims of this war, really at the very early stages of the war. Uh, And and his assassination really comes out of the fear of that message, does it not? Yes, I think that anyone who speaks up, um, as they say here in the United States, speaks truth to power, anyone who speaks against the powers that be that are unjust, um, they're a marked person. They're a marked person. I mean, you have to remember that in the time of the Civil War in Central America, uh, or in any regime that is an oppressive regime, even to teach a person how to read is a political act. And so here someone comes along who acknowledges and recognizes the dignity of every human being, right? 
who um, hears the cry of the poor, of the oppressed, you know, and you cannot hear that cry without also denouncing the social structures that give rise to those cries, right? And so it's very interconnected. And uh, sometimes it's very difficult for me when people just focus on, uh, you know, the beatitudinous or the sainthood of Monsignor Romero without really looking at the kind of social structures that he was critiquing that were instruments of death not life. And something that's even more uncomfortable is for us to look at the complicity of the United States in relationship to its foreign policies, right? This is something we don't talk about. We don't want to talk about. But as they say, for example, in Mexico, when we here in the United States get a cold, they get pneumonia. So it calls us to whether we're religiously based or humanistically based, right? Because, you know, Christians don't have the corner on justice, you know, to, to think more systemically, you know, about things and our relationships. You talk about speaking truth to power. Well, when we talk about someone in a role as archbishop in a country, generally we think of that person as part of the power structure. And so th- this took on greater power because this was someone who um, I think was viewed as uh, part of a conservative power structure during that particular point in time and realized what was going on and then talked about revealing that to a wider public? Um, Historically, it's true that the Roman Catholic Church has been hand-in-hand with the um, institutions of power in Latin America. But there has been a shift that has happened um, within the last, I would say, 50 years plus, um, where uh, the Church has turned its gaze um, to empowering, uh, educating, uh, sustaining, accompanying uh, the poor and the marginalized. But I want to say something, because I don't want to sound too critical of the Roman Catholic Church. I think they initially did that because they thought that if they educated the elite, right, that, that the elite would be transformed, would develop, a, would develop a moral compass in order to impact society, right? But that didn't happen, right? And so they sort of shifted. This is what happened with the Jesuits as well at UCA, at the University of Central America. And so I think that that shift happened um, and, you know, Monsignor Romero was not a liberation theologian. You know, he's not a politician. Right. Um, as some people, people like to claim. identify him with liberation theology. And some say that his martyrdom was not recognized because of that connection. Yeah, there was a lot of critique um, about liberation theology in the 70s and the 80s. This is true. But Monsignor Romero, you have to remember, is a Roman Catholic bishop. The primary role of a bishop is to unify and so he really tried to take the medium, you know, the, the middle of the road, so to speak, in this conflict, but realized that that was not possible given the brutality, right, and the oppression that was going on at the time. And so he had to speak up. And one of the things that I, I love to also have people take a look at is the conversion process, process that Monsignor Romero himself went through, right? And that conversion process happened because of his engagement with the faith of the poor. We see a very different Pope than was Pope when this happened. Um, Is this happening because uh, this is a Pope who has, uh, when we talk about Pope Francis, that has made dealing with social justice and poverty one of the very top priorities of his church now? Um, I would say a couple of things. Number one, I think the connection is that Monsignor Romero was a pastor, right? 
he was a pastor, and I think our Pope is as well, that he wants his priests to smell like sheep, <laughs> is the expression, right? Which means he wants, you know, the priest not to be clerical, not to be hierarchical, but to accompany and walk with the people. That means walk where they walk, right? So I think that's one key point, that they're both pastors, right? Um, I think the other thing is that, um, you know, we... Uh, We've paid a lot of attention to, for example, the Vatican II Council that happened between 1962 and 1965, which was a catalyst for some of the reforms in the Roman Catholic Church, right? What we don't look at is that when those bishops from around the world went back to their own continents, they reflected on those documents in light of their reality. And so the bishops of Latin America met, they called Salem, which is the Conference of Ecclesial Latin American Bishops. They met and reflected on their reality in light of the spirit of Vatican II. And so both Francis and Romero were, I think, influenced and impact by that option for the poor that the Latin American bishops stated in their reflection. You have brought us back to think about uh, the policies of the United States during the Reagan administration when these things were happening in Central America. Do you feel that U.S. policy during that particular period of time presented itself in a way that didn't allow the church to venerate Romero in the same way we see now? Well, you know, one of the difficulties of that time period, and even with liberation theology, is that there was conflict both in within the church and outside the church, right? So if you think of a continuum, you had people who were... Um, uh, advocates or proponents of liberation theology and those who were on the other side of the continuum, very uh, traditional conservative and everything in the middle. Um, and that would be true, like I said, within the church, uh, ecclesial structures as well as the political structures. But I think if you talk to most Latin Americans who are justice oriented, they will say that the Reagan era was a very difficult era for Latin America in general, in terms of foreign policy. So I certainly think that one of the ongoing challenges, um, and both Pope Francis has critiqued this as well, as well as Monsignor Romero, who have said that the root of all evil is unjust economic systems. Right? And this is always a very um, you know, sacred cow to, to address, right? Um, who decides, who benefits, um, you know, who has a voice, who's at the table, Thank you so much, Professor You're Jeanette welcome. Rodriguez of Seattle University, the co-author of Cultural Memory, Resistance, Faith, and Identity, among other books. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, more discussion on liberation theology and the importance of Oscar Romero. Please stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. And now we resume our discussion on the martyrdom of Oscar Romero. Although it's fairly obvious to lay observers that Romero became a martyr through his murder, Catholic philosophers have debated whether he was killed for his faith or his politics. Because the liberation theology movement 
had embraced Romero, conservatives in the church blocked any official move to name Romero a martyr until he was judged as less contentious. Pope John Paul II, who was recently named as a saint by the church, or canonized, paid a controversial visit to Romero's tomb in the 1980s. But some blame John Paul and his successor, Pope Benedict XVI, for blocking Romero from martyrdom. We spoke to Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University about the papal politics surrounding Romero. He's the Bishop Walter Sullivan Chair in Catholic Studies at VCU. We reached him via Skype in Richmond. Uh, it's interesting to see that the, the process of beatification and eventual uh, canonization obviously had been blocked for a long time, first under uh, John Paul II and then under Benedict XVI. Uh, apparently, Benedict XVI, as he was exiting office, um, gave his approval to the process of him first becoming a martyr, as he just recently was declared last month. Um, but those of us who who were around back then remember that uh, that as Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, Benedict XVI really was was the was Pope John Paul II's uh, enforcer and and pit bull attacking liberation theology in its heyday during the 1980s. And so, you know, there's a lot of politics, a lot of the conservative uh, sectors of the Catholic Church were, were or have been opposed to, to the beatification and what should probably be the eventual canonization of uh, Archbishop Romero. We've talked about liberation theology on this program before with you. Uh, the idea of mixing politics with religion that the catholic church should should be working for the poor working for equality in many of these countries in latin america that are very oligarchic and 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 have the elite taking 90 percent of of the resources of particular countries and so so you really saw priests nuns uh, holy people really working with with some of the guerrilla groups during the 70s and 80s in, in this particular region, and, and, and so obviously this became highly politicized, but many have written about the fact that, that Archbishop Romero really came late to this particular area and really came to it because he saw the obvious oppression um, and violence aimed at those who were followers of, of this exactly. particular way. Despite the fact that he, he really was an intellectual and came from a world of books, uh, it really was his own personal experience more importantly, the murder of his close Jesuit friend, Father uh, Jesuit Father Rutilio Grande, which really kind of served as the catalyst that began his trajectory from being a rather conservative, uh, bookish uh, Catholic intellectual to becoming, although you know he really never openly declared it, but basically to becoming a practitioner of liberation theology. In his, in his short tenure as archbishop. So yeah, it wasn't so much, you know, reading about liberation theology in the books, but the actual experience of becoming archbishop and seeing some 30 of his fellow clerics being uh, being assassinated. You follow, of course, the, the history and politics of the Vatican. Uh, there are mixed opinions, of course, about uh, Pope John Paul II, now a saint, um, about his behavior regarding... Archbishop Romero, um, um, did he not take a trip to El Salvador to to also venerate and remember the Archbishop, even while the Vatican was holding back 
um, his the the official naming of of Romero as a as a martyr. Yeah, that's true. He did take a trip and and uh, and went to the tomb in 1983. That's true. But nonetheless, I, I think he was an important obstacle to that. And, and probably most importantly, there was very little Vatican support at the time when Archbishop Romero was under siege, uh, you know, and under a different pope at a different time. We would have seen, I think, you know, a much louder and clearer voice protesting the the uh, repression of the church in El Salvador at the time. But of course, this was a Polish pope who was who was steeped in in the Cold War and tended like President Reagan and and all the protagonists at the time, Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, to see everything through the, the lens of the Cold War and really didn't have a great understanding of Latin America and heavily relied on counsel for Latin America from then uh, Colombian Cardinal Alfonso Lopez Trujillo, who was a leading conservative in the region as well. So yeah, I think no doubt that even though he did take that trip and and paid a visit that that he really was the primary obstacle uh to this and and the reason why it's taken you know why it's just the ball is getting rolling again after uh over three decades i know this is sometimes controversial in catholic circles as you're supposed to accept what rome says without debate sometimes is the view but um this points to the fact that the whole issue of sainthood canonization is highly politicized oh yeah no doubt in fact in fact there was a lot of debate for a long time a theological debate about whether or not Romero could be declared a martyr because to be a martyr one is supposed to have died been persecuted and to have lost their lives because they were persecuted for reasons for hatred of the faith and and many of those more conservative elements would say, no, you know, Romero was not persecuted on the basis of faith. He was he was persecuted for for his political stance, for his left of center political stance. And, uh, you know, there is debate. Well, do we need to change the definition of martyrdom in the church? Ultimately, however, the compromise solution, which allowed this to the process of martyrdom to to move forward, was the conclusion that yes, he was persecuted and was murdered on the basis of his faith, but that particular element of his faith in which he was a tireless champion of, of social justice. And so that's, that's kind of the compromise solution that was worked out without changing the uh, long-held Catholic uh, stance definition of, of martyrdom. Beyond the official Catholic debate, if you look at what happened in that particular case, it, w it wasn't just Archbishop Romero calling for social justice, was it? It, it was he was he was basically calling for uh, the Salvadoran army and and paramilitaries to stop killing their their fellow Salvadorans, which you could say is a pretty basic Catholic concept of. Oh, and of uh, course, and, and he was actually murdered the day after he 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 gave that homily in which he said, you know, no. No soldier is is uh, has to has to obey commands that are contrary to the law of God. And the next day was when he received a bullet through the heart at uh, giving mass at the hospital chapel. So yeah, yeah, no doubt about that. However, however, you know, like like Pope Francis, although 
although he was denouncing the Salvadoran economic system as kind of the root of injustice in Salvadoran society, it wasn't a blanket condemnation of capitalism, as, as some have posited. It was, it was, you know, more in line with we've got this kind of brutal uh, oligarchic type of capitalism. But, you know, he was also he was also quick to criticize those on the left who are championing a Soviet style type of communism and saying nothing about the very brutal and Soviet invasion of the time of Afghanistan as well. When you look not just at uh, the killing of Archbishop Romero, but also his funeral, uh, it really talks about the violent times that Central America was going through at the time. If I recall correctly, uh, weren't, weren't there also snipers that were deployed to shoot people at his funeral? Yeah, some, four, some 40 people were gunned down at his funeral, exactly. Became martyrs uh, at his funeral, right. And of course, of course, one of the, the very sad and sorry legacies is, you know, this is a civil war that starts in 79, really doesn't officially conclude until 1992. So, of course, Romero was really uh, in his position at the beginning of the war. And now, you know, if we look at Salvador 30, 35 years later, you know, Salvador is number two in the world in homicide rates. Of course, it's not the Civil War, but now it's, we've got all the drug cartel and gang violence going on that, uh, that you know, continue to plague the country despite the fact that the Civil War ended in 1992. I, I should also add that since then, it's very interesting, Salvador now has one of the proportionally smallest Catholic populations and largest Protestant populations uh, since that time in all of Latin America. Uh, it's pretty much half, half Protestant, half Catholic today. We, we've talked on this program before about the explosion of evangelical Christianity in Latin America. You're certainly an expert in that, and, and El Salvador is one of those countries where we've seen that happen. Exactly. Exactly. Just been specifically this phenomenal growth of, of Pentecostalism, which uh, back in, in Archbishop Romero's day was, wasn't probably more than five or ten percent of the population. And now at least a third of Salvadorans are Pentecostals as well. And so this also the the eventual canonization of Romero touches on a larger issue. We really seen almost a canonization fever take place here in the Americas. Because, as I've argued in other places, the, you know, the primary reason why, why we have our first Latin American pope is despite the fact that almost half of the world's Catholics are Latin American, 40% to be exact, the Catholic Church has been hemorrhaging primarily to Pentecostalism all the way back to the 1950s. And so one of the strategies to deal with this intense comp competition presented by the Pentecostals has been has been this this uh, very rapid rush of beatification and canonization of of holy people born here in the Americas because there's a huge dearth of that again you know of the almost ten thousand Catholic saints in the church the great majority of them were European and so the thinking on the part of the Vatican if we if we canonize more saints who are actually born lived and and you know, went through their entire lives here in the Americas, then that, that will help make the church more more accessible, uh, something the Pentecostals have been masters at. I want to ask you about 
Pope Francis and his role in in changing how Romero has been looked at. Pope Francis, not a follower of liberation theology, but someone who says that that Romero has given him personal spiritual inspiration. Is this Pope Francis's way to move this process along? His way of leveling the playing field in this debate about liberation theology? Although he hasn't, you know, fully embraced it, I mean, there definitely are many elements of his ministry that that heavily draw on the whole central message of, of liberation theology, and, and that in the short two years since since he ascended to the papacy, we see that his focus has been has been the poor and downtrodden, particularly of the global south. Thank you so much. Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University. Join us via Skype on Latin Pulse today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Rick. We'll be hearing more from our interview with Andrew Chestnut later this spring. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Gabriela Conchola and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. Music